0: Mark chapter 9, and we begin in verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen. And if you've been with us, you know that what they had seen was the transfiguration of Jesus. This extraordinary time, they didn't know what to make of it, they didn't know what to say, where really the deity of Jesus just kind of flashes forth. He's come in humility, there was nothing in his appearance, Isaiah prophesied in general in the Messiah, that people would notice him or be attracted to him. Except for then, when His clothing, His face, just everything about the incarnate Son of God flashed forth in deity that was just stunning and dazzling and extraordinary. And they heard God's voice, God speaking directly, audibly from heaven. This is my Son whom I love. Listen to him. And so now, they're coming down off that mountainside. And as they come down off the mountain, Jesus gives them orders not to tell anyone about it. Not to say anything about the extraordinary vision that they've just seen, or the words that they've just heard Until the Son of Man has risen from the dead, it says, then they can and should tell. And we'll come back to that a little later. The disciples, you know, they kept the matter to themselves discussing what rising from the dead meant. What is Jesus talking about? He's predicted it already, he's going to again as we'll see, but as we've already seen, a dying Messiah just isn't in their theology, isn't in their understanding of how God and the things of God could possibly work. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? They just saw Elijah on the mountaintop, so now they're thinking about those prophecies about Elijah as the forerunner of Messiah, and I think they're thinking, wait a minute, if Elijah's appearance is the precursor to messianic glory, how can there be a death by crucifixion coming up? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. So he affirms what Malachi prophesies about the coming Elijah, but he reminds them that there were parts of their Bible that they kept missing or skipping over or not paying attention to. And so he says, why then is it written in places like Isaiah 53 that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? And then he backs up a little bit, but I tell you, Elijah has come. And who is Jesus talking about there? John the Baptist, who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Elijah had his Jezebel and Ahab. John the Baptist had Herodias and Herod. Elijah has come, and they've done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. And then skip down to verse 30. Again, after another miraculous episode, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone at this time to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He was going deeper with them than what he publicly and generally taught. And he said to them, the Son of Man, one of the titles for Messiah, the end-time king who was to come, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. He's going to be turned into, or turned over to, men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. And then just this honest, frank editorializing by Mark. But they did not understand what he meant and then this and we're afraid to ask him about it they didn't even want to go there to me that's you know this is the realism the stark realism of what jesus and the work of jesus and the person of jesus it's not easy it's not tidy it's not comfortable it's not fun and happy and enjoyable and positive all the time there are going to be realities there are going to be events, there are going to be experiences that are going to be so horrific that they don't even want to think in those categories. And that challenges me not to be in the mode of only wanting a Christianity that fits with the kind of Christianity that I'm going to like and I'm going to find palatable and acceptable already. I have to go wherever the realities of who Jesus was and what that means, truly take me. And so this morning, as I was studying for this passage all week, and um, it's kind of a different passage. There's a lot of sort of mysterious stuff in there. And uh, for a while, I went this way, and that was kind of the emphasis. And then I think, well, i talk more about the sufferings of Jesus or what's going on with the Elijah passages. And Then it occurred to me from one of the, sayings, phrases in here, that sometimes it's probably good for us, as important as it is to look at the details along the way, to look at the trees, that sometimes if we're going to understand the entire gospel of Mark, and really the entire gospel, and the story of the Bible, we've got to take steps back and see how it all goes together, and see how it all fits together. And so that's what I want to do a little bit more of, or try to do, together this morning. Basically around these three ideas. The first one, rooted very clearly in the passage, you cannot rightly understand Jesus until you truly understand, until you understand the truth about his death and resurrection. That's why there is what theologians and commentators call the command to silence. He gave orders, don't tell every, anybody what you saw. He's done that repeatedly beforehand in this gospel. Something miraculous will happen and or there will be a miraculous declaration about him. You're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Why? Why? Don't tell anyone until the Son of Man's risen from the dead. Until the death, the crucifixion has happened, culminating in the extraordinary resurrection three days later, you won't possibly get it right to understand what all these miraculous things. You won't understand the transfiguration correctly. It's only in light of Christ's full and finished work of saving death and victorious resurrection, that you can really look back and understand the true significance and meaning of even something as extraordinary as the transfiguration. So first, as I said, you can't rightly understand Jesus until you understand the truth about his death and resurrection. That's still true today. If you just say great moral teacher and you minimize and kind of leave out Death and resurrection, you really haven't understood Jesus and you haven't understood Christianity. Secondly, though, I want us to go one step further back and realize you can't rightly understand God until you rightly understand Jesus. And then thirdly, one more step back, although we're going to take these in reverse, you can't rightly understand yourself, the world we live in, And what life is all about until you understand the truth about God so I want us to think about those things together this morning first of all you can't rightly understand yourself this world and what life is all about until you understand the truth about God Proverbs says it simply the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom to flip it around if you want wisdom and understanding and insight, what is life all about? And how do I live it the way it's supposed to be lived? What does it mean to be a human being? What am I? And why are we here? The really big, important, huge questions that every person should be asking. I think it was Socrates that said, the unexamined life isn't worth living. Never to ask those profoundest questions and just kind of mill around in our daily activity without understanding the answers to the biggest questions, who am I, what am I, why am I here, and what's it all about? That's not a life worth living. And so the only way you'll get the answer right in its fundamental source kind of way that, be, that will be the beginning and the source of all the real wisdom you need for living is by beginning with the fear of the Lord. That is, with the profoundest regard and respect for the reality of the supreme being who is really and truly there. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time demonstrating that for this morning. I just have time to, if we're going to start, that's where we have to start. And so the tragedy of the human condition experience now lived Out every day in our personal lives and in the cultural scene and the cultural situation and in the terrible decline that's going on in the West and in America frankly is what Paul describes in Romans Romans chapter 1 for although they knew God we humans at one point knew God we had a revelation from God freshly created from him They neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. Later in the verses it says they didn't see fit to retain God in their knowledge any longer. Just wasn't worth it. And so their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts went dark. And although they kept claiming to be wise, they became fools. And he says in Romans chapter 3, ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace, the way to shalom, the way to peace that we're always talking about. They don't know. Why? Because again, Paul says, echoing the Old Testament, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Or as one translation puts it, there's no fear of God in their view of the world. And I'm just here to say you will never get it right as to why we're here and what it means to be a human being until you start with God, the God who's really there. Here's something that I started in New Horizons last Sunday and then I mentioned it on Wednesday night and I thought, well, I've got a chance to speak to the whole church this Sunday, so... Here is a new assignment for you to also help you in your witnessing and in your evangelism and to start up spiritual conversations with people. I want you to go and cultivate those conversations, if you will, along these lines and say, hey, I'm a part of a religious studies class. That's, count that as this this morning. This is a religious studies class. It's more than that, but count it as that. And say, And my teacher gave me an assignment. I'm the teacher this time. Here's the assignment. There are certain questions that he wants me to ask people who aren't Christians just to try to better understand what people are thinking about religiously and spiritually. Now, I really don't mean this as some kind of deceptive things. I really do want to hear what people's answers are to the questions I'm about to give, I want more than that, we want their conversion, which is a loving thing for them, but I don't want less than that. I really don't understand at this point the non-Christians answers to the questions that I'm going to give you to ask. And I love it if you use these questions to try to generate spiritual conversations that can lead on an evangelism. First of all, simple question, Do you think there is a God or there is no God? Now, from the noisy atheists and everything that you hear all the time, you might think, well, a lot of people, most people don't think there is a God. But, you know, if you reflect, that really doesn't seem to be the case. Even still, in our increasingly secularized uh, culture, when something terrible happened a few Sundays ago, The President of the United States, the leader of the free world, made allusion to it being especially tragic that it happened on the Lord's Day. It happened on a Sunday. And so, I think if you think about it, if you're like me, most of the people you encounter, they do believe there's a God. They really do. Very few convinced, absolutely sure, hardcore atheists out there Some, but not very many, I don't think. The Bible, Romans 1, says deep down, deep down, deep down, there aren't any. They know God, and they know, according to the end of Romans 1, that living in disobedience to him deserves death. Did you know that the Bible says that the unsaved person deep down knows that too? But, even if they profess to be atheist, most don't. But, for those who say no God at all, I don't think there is a God. Then ask them, you know, if that's true, how do you get to meaning and to morals? If we are just random cosmic flotsam, if we are just evolutionary accidents, time plus space plus matter plus nothing else, no purpose, no design, then how in the world do you get to meaning? How do you get to truth? How do you get to morals? To right, to wrong, to ought? Things ought to be this way and ought not to be that way. And let me tell you, their most honest philosophers and writers, including some of the angry atheists, admit, you can't, you can't, you've just got to pretend. We've got to live as though there were meaning because we can't live otherwise, but the deep, deep secret is there isn't any. Now, again, we've talked a little bit about that before, but nobody can live that way. Nobody, including them, does live that way. If one of those angry, atheistic, hardcore philosophers, if something terrible happened to one of their children from a a, a criminal, They would view that as wrong and repulsive and it ought not to have happened. But they have no reason in their own way of thinking and worldview to say that and to conclude that and in their own writings, they admit it. All I'm saying at this point, any view of the world that does such a terrible job of explaining the realities that really exist, we do live as if there's meaning and morals and truth. Something's wrong with that worldview in a fundamental way. And so, God or no God, that's the first question and that kind of challenging connection to it. Then, the great majority, I think, of the people that you'll interact with will say, no, I think there's a God. I I do, I, I do think there's a God. And then the next question to me, logical, seems to be, well, how do you know what he's like? I'm going to say he You know, for sake of argument, they might say otherwise. But how do you know what he's like? And how do you know what he wants? It's extraordinary to me to imagine there is a God, but he wants to have nothing to do with us and hasn't communicated to us at all. And so, how do you know what God is like and how do you know what God wants? And there are only so many answers. Historic, Orthodox, Evangelical Christianity says God has spoken. He's given us his word. Hebrews 1 starts off in times past. He spoke in many different ways by the prophets. And in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So that's an extremely coherent explanation. We know what God is like and what he wants because he has spoken and it's been inspired by him in the Bible that we have. But if you don't have that, then what? Well just kind of private personal intuition and just sort of my own imaginings. That's really the only other source, isn't it? If it doesn't come from him, the knowledge of God, it comes from us. And then I think you're really, really, well then, whose imaginings? Whose intuitions? Who says? And then my third question would be, what will you do with Jesus, especially his resurrection, And the whole C.S. Lewis, liar, lunatic, or Lord. If someone went around saying the things that Jesus said, C.S. Lewis says, your sins are forgiven, your eternal destiny depends on your relationship to me. You know, again, if one of your colleagues started saying that, you'd think, what a nut job. Or, man, so profoundly deluded, it's tragic. That's really the only possibilities unless he actually is the Son of God. And so ask those kinds of questions and let those be gateways to further conversation about where people are spiritually. And remember, Christianity explored that we do regularly throughout the church's calendar to invite just those people searching and seeking in those ways. So all of that to say, you can't rightly understand the world, what it means to be a human being, until you rightly understand the truth about God. But then, the Bible makes it clear, you can't rightly and fully understand God until you understand Jesus. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, who's the Word? The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, John writes, and he probably had the transfiguration partly in mind, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's right hand, he has made him known. The Son exegetes and explains the Father. You'll never understand God. That's why the question, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? Not if Muslims deny that Jesus is the Son, and they do. You'll never know or rightly understand God. You can't just have your own vague conception of him until you understand Jesus. In fact, Jesus says in John 14, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? And then he says something extraordinary, one of the things that Lewis relates the question to. He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Look at Jesus. Listen to Jesus. That's what God is. That's what God is like. Then, thirdly, you cannot rightly understand Jesus until you understand his death and resurrection. That's basically the meaning of that saying in verse 9. And so, just to remind us this morning, the big picture of Christianity what is the meaning of his death? And to answer that, I just want to other Bible passages. Jesus himself says the Son of Man came to give his life, that's his death, as a ransom for many. It's going to set slaves free. Romans 5, or John 3:16, the most famous verse in the Bible, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, turned him over for death, That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the meaning of his death. Romans 5, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us since we have now been justified by his blood, by that dying. That dying puts us right with God because He's our sacrifice and our substitute. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? Paul says simply in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins. That's what He was doing. That's what the crucifixion meant. That's why Messiah had to suffer. In Colossians 2, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, where? Nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, all the evil spiritual forces by the cross. That's the meaning of Jesus' death. What's the meaning of his resurrection? Romans 1, 4 says he was appointed or declared the Son of God in power, not the Son of God in humility and suffering, the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Acts 2, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Paul says, you'll be saved. For this very reason Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. In Acts 17, God commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead the meaning of the resurrection is that jesus christ is lord of everybody everywhere that jesus christ is this world's rightful king and that jesus christ is the one who on behalf of god the father will judge every person every life every nation every ruler at the end of time you don't understand jesus rightly until you understand the meaning of his death and the meaning of his resurrection. The meaning of his death was an atonement. So, what's the right response? Trust in Jesus Christ alone for your forgiveness, for getting right with God, to take away and to cleanse your sin and your guilt. Faith, trust in Jesus Christ is the right response to the truth that his death was an atonement for our sins. What's the resp- right response to his resurrection? He is Lord. So, bow the knee. Recognize his lordship. Recognize his authority. As he said in the uh, passage of the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me. The right response to the lordship of Christ is submitting to him and committing and deciding to follow him and to live by his teaching but we want to go one step further. You can't rightly understand Jesus' death and resurrection and what God was doing through him until you carefully listen to him. Remember what God the Father said about Jesus on the mount. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Stop talking, Peter. You won't get it right about what it means to know and follow the Messiah. Stop thinking in your own imagining and your own intuition. Well, I like to think of God as, and I like to, and I like to, this is my son, listen to him, is what God the Father says to us. And so, as we draw to a close, I just want to remind us again, Becoming a Christian is not a matter of picking and choosing according to our own preferences. Becoming a Christian is not spirituality a la carte. That I just sort of take from Christianity and from church and from the whole thing, just the bits that I like. And the things that I think will sort of help me live more successfully on my own terms still. Jesus isn't Tony Robbins. Jesus is Lord. And he defines and he tells us. And so we see that again and again. In the New Testament, becoming a Christian means becoming a learner of everything that Christianity teaches and then living by it, submitting to it. What what is the language of the Great Commission? All authority has been given to me, therefore, on heaven and on earth. Because that's true, go and make disciples. What are disciples? Learners who live by what they learn from their rabbi. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, and what? Teaching them to obey. What again? Everything I've commanded. Becoming a Christian means necessarily and in principle... You are committing yourself to learning and living by the entire curriculum of Jesus' teaching. The entire body of it, not bits and pieces. And you find this emphasis throughout the New Testament. Paul says, describing the conversion of the Roman Christians, thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. The entire body of doctrine. He says in 2 Thessalonians 2, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings, literally the tradition we passed on to you, whether by word or mouth of mouth or by letter. So it's an entire tradition that gets passed on and learned and lived by not Christianity a la carte. Jude called it the faith, what? Once and for all, handed down to the saints. Not revised all along the way, generation by generation. It has to be transposed and adapted into the current situations, but it's the faith, once and for all, Handed down to the saints. That's why Paul says in Titus 1.9 that the faithful pastor is someone who holds firm to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. You know, these writers, these Christian writers, who's like, here's the real message of Jesus. No one knew this before. Now read my stuff and you'll know it. That's a bad sign. Because it's supposed to be the same thing. That's been handed down since the days of Jesus himself. In fact, John says in 2 John, anyone who runs ahead and doesn't continue in the teaching of Christ doesn't have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And so James says this thing that always sort of used to bug me. He says in uh, James chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, if anybody keeps the whole law but is guilty of part of it, what? He's guilty of all of it. I'm like, that's not fair. If there are ten commandments and I kept nine, that should be pretty good. That should be B plus at least. Why does James say that? Because Christianity isn't just a system of beliefs and ethics. It's a relationship to God, to Christ, the King. It's a person-to-person relationship. And if even if in general I go along with Jesus and his teaching for nine-tenths of it, but there's a part of it that I know Jesus commands and calls me to do or to be, and I defy that, that pretty much ruins the whole thing, doesn't it? I'm in a position of defiance to Jesus. Not entire defiance, but still defiance. And disbelieve again christianity is not spirituality a la carte on your own terms it is a relationship to the living lord and savior who teaches you to obey in every aspect of life everything he's commanded Finally, when it comes to true Christianity, when it comes to really knowing God and Christ, you have to be all in. Jesus said, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Again, as we've said before, it doesn't mean you're not allowed to. It means you won't be able to. You can't serve two ultimate supreme authorities in your life. It can't work. Practically, you'll end up hating the one and loving the other, being devoted to one, despising the other. You can't serve God and fill in the blank. And so again, Romans 6.17 says, You became obedient from the heart to the pattern of teaching. Obedient from the heart to the whole thing. You must decide to follow Jesus leaving behind everything else, even while you come to discover that those who are authentic and all in that way might be, usually are, a small remnant among the professing people of God. But what is that to you or to me? I've got to do what my conscience, reading God's Word, led by God's Spirit, leads me to do to understand what it means to be a follower of Christ, and remember from Mark's gospel the final verses that we'll share this morning what it means to be a follower of Christ according to Mark chapter 8 verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and says, "Whoever wants to be my disciple, and remember from Acts 11:26, disciple and Christian are synonyms. So, whoever wants to be a Christian must deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life, his soul, just manage it on his own terms, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And think about it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this, face it, adulterous and sinful generation, and that was a phrase often used about the professing people of God too, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he is going to come that way. The Messiah, the once crucified, now risen at God the Father's right hand, Jesus, is going to come again with the Father's glory. And many who are first now will be last. And many who are last now will be first. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will continue to use your word, the gospel of Mark, to teach us what it really means, what it really means. In spite of what we may have learned from the cultural Christianity around us, to follow Jesus, it's not spirituality a la carte. It's Christ following, all in. Help us to see and to rightly respond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.